Hey everybody, Magnus here. Preschool. You know, I went to a preschool for daycare and for fucking preschool when I was a tiny, tiny little kid. The setup was pretty simple, really. You start the day off hanging around the cafeteria waiting for school to start. Then it would start. And after you place your lunch order with the teacher, you'd hang around the classroom for a while pretending to listen to the teacher blabber about God only knows what, while stealing glances at that cute blonde a few rows over. Of course, ordering lunch could sometimes be a pain in the neck because invariably the teacher, which is to say Mrs. Smith, would call my choice of lunch into question every single time. She'd say, Do you really want a grilled cheese sandwich again? Isn't that what you ordered yesterday? Nothing I ever said satisfied that miserable wench, I swear to God. After that stupidity came chapel. And basically we'd sing songs and then one of the adults would read stories to us, mostly from the Bible. Now, I was no theologian as a kid, but it'd be fair to say that I was going through a phase where the only person I liked from the entire Old Testament was Moses. And I think the reason for that is because, you know, everybody questioned his decisions too. Those Bible readings did give me my, my first major religious epiphany, though. The woman on the stage read something or other, and then made the point of saying that God loves everybody. Everybody. At that moment, I looked over at Mrs. Smith. Now, you guys need to understand that Mrs. Smith was a fat, revolting blob of a human being with horrible breath and terrible manners. She chewed her fingernails, second-guessed my lunch order every fucking day, yelled at kids for really no reason at all, and pretty much behaved like a total pig. I reasoned in that moment that God must have a perfect love. He loves perfectly, and his love is perfect. It has to be. Or else he would have wiped Mrs. Smith out a long time ago. Because I already knew there was no way in hell I could ever love Mrs. Smith. So if God could love Mrs. Smith, he is greatly to be praised. Which, as far as religious insights go, I think that's not bad coming from a four-year-old. During nap time, I tried like crazy to avoid this one kid named Logan. Now, he was okay when he was awake. Don't get me wrong. In fact, actually, he was hysterical because he knew the funniest jokes. But, man, you didn't want to be anywhere near that kid during nap time because he'd fart like crazy. No, like, that kid sounded like a fucking chainsaw once he nodded off. I mean, I don't know this to be true, but my guess is that his farts are probably considered weapons of mass destruction in Iran because, guys, that was some weapons-grade gas he was firing off, I swear. Anyway. Typically, from there, the day would wind down with nonstop playtime on the playground. 
Now, people, this was a full-scale playground. We're, we're talking about the 1980s here, back before everybody got sued into fucking oblivion for dangerous playground equipment. I saw a kid get a split lip from the tetherball. This other girl uh, that I saw got a tooth knocked out because some ramrod was swinging his feet off the merry-go-round. Now, I didn't like her all that much. I mean, she acted kind of like a frigid bitch every time I happened to be in her near vicinity, but that didn't mean I wanted her to get a tooth knocked out, you know? In point of fact, I think it'd be fair to say that the only kid for whom I had a very serious distaste was this fucking puke a few months older than I was. And the reason for that's because he he didn't just have a Superman cape. No, no, that would have been too pedestrian. This kid, I shit the negative, had his mom make him an exact replica of Christopher Reeve's cape from the Superman movies. I knew those movies like the back of my hand, even as a kid. I'd studied that costume meticulously. And I'm here to tell you guys, his cape was the real deal. Just smaller. So, naturally, I hated this kid named Charlie. (sighs) There's really no ending to this anecdote, so I'll just say big juicy steak. Hashtag things Magnus misses. I've studied the form of comics, Angel. What you need is a hobby. The words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil, a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are a last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football, Year-round, nobody cares. Basketball, year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me they make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. music. You know, it's interesting to me, that is, that music that you're hearing right now is, to me, is so specifically Spider-Man. Does that make sense? This is the kind of hero theme that I think Spider-Man has always needed, but has never really had, you know? I mean, you, you go back and you listen to the, the Sam Raimi uh, film scores, and there's kind of a theme, but, and, and by that I mean a hero theme, but honestly, not much of one. It's almost more like a motif than it is a full-on theme thing, you know? And this may seem a a little bit like a contradiction considering all of the glowing things that I said about the Spider-Man 3 score back in my Spider-Man 3 episode and really it's not it's really just an acknowledgement that 
you know, people can love or, or, or they can hate Hans Zimmer as a composer, but at least when it came to Spider-Man, and I mean Amazing Spider-Man 2, Zimmer knew what he was up against, and he gave Spider-Man this kind of hero theme. It's, it, it, it sort of reminds me of fanfare for the common man, kind of, sort of, but not really, and I don't know. It, it, and, and there's also a sort of Olympic type of vibe to it, I guess. And overall, the whole thing, it just seems very Spider-Man to me. And I should add, very uh, it, it seems specifically very ultimate Spider-Man to me. It always has. So, anyway, hello and welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. Anyway, as you may have already guessed, I'm, 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 I'm basically going to talk about Ultimate Spider-Man uh, this week, and this is all basically related to the tremendous Bendis Weekly series that uh, that I've been working my way through lately. And I, I guess the the shtick of it's actually pretty simple. Basically, I consider myself to be somewhat of a fan of Brian Michael Bendis as a writer, and at least in my opinion, he gets kicked around way too often. And I, I'm very well aware of the fact that familiarity breeds contempt, that there, there are only so many times you can see the same motherfucker's n name in the credits for a particular comic book before you just check out, and you're sick and tired of seeing the same guy everywhere you go. And I honestly, I really do think that's, that's the majority of the resistance that a lot of people have to, to Bendis. So maybe I'm wrong, but that's, that's what I think is at the real heart of the issue. But my view is that Bendis is actually a really good writer and... I wanted to use this as an opportunity to talk about Brian Michael Bendis comics that I just dig. You know, there's there's really no uh, higher significance to it. I just really enjoy certain of his comics, and I wanted to spend about, you know, five episodes talking about that stuff. Now, as I did it, one of the things that I realized is that Bendis is extraordinarily I guess, linked, tied in, whatever, with one particular comic book. I mean, I almost feel like if you're going to talk about Bendis as a, as a writer and you don't mention Ultimate Spider-Man, you're not doing your fucking job. I mean, it, it would be sort of like talking about, I don't know, uh, Frank Miller and not mentioning, uh, I don't know, the Dark Knight Returns, or or talking about Alan Moore and avoiding all mention of Watchmen. I mean, there are certain things that writers or whoever, artists, whoever, I, I don't know as I'd go so far as to say that this is their defining work, but in a way, I guess it kind of is. I mean, you know, if you're going to talk about... I don't know, Led Zeppelin, for example, and you don't mention Stairway to Heaven. Like, I think a lot of core Led Zeppelin fans are 
probably burnt out on Stairway to Heaven, but at the same time, that is such an incredible song that no matter how familiar it's become, you're really not being intellectually honest if you don't talk about that. And that's kind of where I'm coming from with Bendis and Ultimate Spider-Man. I mean, I don't think any intellectually honest discussion of Bendis' career is complete without talking about Ultimate Spider-Man. And in case it wasn't obvious, I'm going to be talking about Ultimate Spider-Man today. Now, the last time that I talked about Ultimate Spider-Man, it was actually episode number 85. I talked about Ultimate Spider-Man numbers one through seven, the power and responsibility storyline. And, you know, I made a promise uh, even in that episode wherein I said, guys, I'm coming back to this. So, you know, you guys just need to be aware of that. And here we are. I'm a man of my word. We're coming back to it. Today, I'm going to be talking about Ultimate Spider-Man number 8 through number 13. This is a storyline entitled Learning Curve. And, ah, fuck it. Here's the, here's the, the uh, summary of, of the storyline. Basically goes a little something, something like this. Peter takes a few photographs of himself as Spider-Man in order to help Aunt May's financial woes. Peter shows the photograph to the Daily Bugle's editor, J. Jonah Jameson, who gives him the minimum pay for the photos. Peter then fixes a, a problem with the newspaper's homepage, which encourages Jameson to offer Peter a, a, a part-time job as the Daily Bugle's webmaster. Peter uses the Bugle's website to locate uh, the criminal that shot Uncle Ben and track down the person for whom the criminal had been working. He finds that the that that Uncle Ben's murderer is part of a larger criminal organization that's led by no by Wilson Fisk, also known as the Kingpin. He then finds a criminal gang called the Enforcers who also work for the Kingpin. Spider-Man tracks and defeats the Enforcers, which forces Mr. Big to tell Spider-Man about Fisk's important gala the following night. The FBI choose that moment to interrupt, and Spider-Man barely manages to escape. The next day, Mary Jane asks Peter on a, uh, on a uh, date for Friday night. Peter then moves it to Saturday instead. That Friday, Spider-Man goes to Fisk's penthouse, but trips the alarm and ends up getting overpowered by Fisk and then subdued by Electro. Spider-Man is then unmasked by Fisk, who, realizing Spider-Man's just a boy, throws Peter's unconscious form through a window, but opts to keep Spider-Man's mask. Peter survives the fall, but is badly injured. Because of that, he cancels Mary Jane's date, which seriously pisses her off. Later, Fisk murders Mr. Big after discovering that it was him who sold Fisk out to Spider-Man. Fisk pulls Spider-Man's mask over Mr. Big's face and then crushes his skull. The body is later discovered, and the news reports all say that Spider-Man is the prime suspect in the murder. At school, Peter creates a false email address and, through it, discovers uh, that Wilson Fisk's security system has closed-circuit TV footage that's stored on CDs. Uh, Spider-Man quickly invades the penthouse again and bags as many CDs as possible. After a skirmish with the enforcers... Electro, and Fisk, 
Spider-Man escapes victorious and gives the CDs, apart from his unmasking, to Ben Urich, a reporter for the Daily Bugle. The published story forces Wilson Fisk to leave the country. Later, Peter invites Mary Jane over to his house and then reveals that he is Spider-Man. The end. So, what did I think? Well, as I say, any discussion of Brian Michael Bendis' career is pretty much incomplete if you don't also talk about Ultimate Spider-Man. And the reason for that is because he did such a masterful job with with Ultimate Spider-Man that you're just, like I say, you're just being dishonest if you don't talk about this. And there are these just, these little flourishes that uh, that Bendis would throw in periodically that would come back again and again and, and sort of become a running gag, you know? And a good example is a shocker, you know? On page one of uh, Ultimate Spider-Man number eight, Shocker is in the middle of an armed robbery of a uh, of an armored truck and Spider-Man swoops out of nowhere, punches him in the face, breaks his nose and basically foils the robbery. And you know, we see uh, Shocker, you know, in a couple of other stories later on and it's these are not big epic pitched battles, you know, the final showdown between good and evil or anything like that. It's not even like that. Spider-Man basically swoops in, kicks his ass real quick, leaves him uh, for the police to find, and then somehow he just comes back later. And there's actually a very good reason why it is that Shocker keeps coming back, and it's kind of funny. But it's to me, the bigger joke is that this guy is trying his best to be this big supervillain, and he's barely on Spider-Man's radar. You know. And speaking of Spider-Man... You know, now that he's found his uncle's killer and he's uh, defended the school against uh, the Green Goblin, he's basically settling in as Spider-Man. He's trying to learn how to how to be this, you know, and in so doing, you know, he's making a lot of mistakes and there's an idealism that comes with that comes with youth that I think there's something about about being a teenager you know there's something in the teenager's DNA that he wants to save the world he wants to change the world you know and for the life of him doesn't understand how it is that bad people can get away with doing bad things when everybody knows this bad person is doing bad things and it's like nobody gives a shit. And so, really, it's... I mean, yeah, Peter has, I guess, a personal agenda in going after the kingpin like this, but as much as anything, it's motivated by by Peter's like I say just by his idealism and that I think is really what propels him through a goodly bit of this story but he actually has a conversation with 
with Robbie about it at, uh, at the Bugle. And Robbie basically says, listen, there's a school of thought that says even if the feds could bring the kingpin down, someone else is just going to take his place, you understand? That's just the way it is. And Peter's view of that is maybe not. Maybe there's another there's another option here. And as I say, it's it's the idealism of youth that would that wouldn't drive Peter to to seek the kingpin out. And if you ask me, I mean that it, it would take balls for somebody 10 years older than Peter is to want a piece of the kingpin. But like I say, I mean, there's something about being a teenager. You're young, dumb, and full of cum, and you think that you can take on anybody. And all you need is, you know, your two fists, and you can go out there and save the fucking world. And what Peter has to learn is that you, it may not be quite that easy. And so he ends up having this... This is in uh, issue number 10. He has a little bit of a... Sort of a mini showdown with with uh, the kingpin, and this is actually the moment when he finally, I guess, grocks the fact you know that his spider sense is basically a warning system, and the kingpin sneaks up behind him. Spider Man spins, throws a punch, but kingpin is just so fucking fat that he he just he doesn't even feel. He doesn't even feel uh, Spider-Man's Spider-Man's punch, so I don't know. And it's I'm, a minute ago I was talking about you know idealism and Peter doesn't understand the danger that he's really in here, and I don't know. He basically just says. He, he he sort of lashes out at at, uh, at the kingpin. Basically, he uh, kingpin says, "Who sent you?" And so Peter just says the first name that pops into his head, Carson Daly. And kingpin replies, "Hey, I don't fucking have any idea who that is." And Peter says, "No, of course you don't. You know why? Because he didn't in, uh, a, a, he didn't invent a line of prepackaged pastries." If he did, I bet you know everything about him, you big fat fatty of a fat man. And it's kind of Spider uh, Spider Man's shtick to uh, make the jokes and uh, and I guess sort of belittle his adversary whenever he's beating the shit out of him. And a lot of people interpret that as bravado. And you know what? There may even be something to that. But there are instances where I think as much as anything, it's not, it, it's not a cover for something. It's Peter truly not taking this person seriously. And he wasn't taking Shocker seriously in, in a, uh, Ultimate Spider-Man number eight. 
He just swooped in there, punched the guy in the face, and then zipped off. He never took Shocker seriously, and he's not taking Kingpin seriously. And, and this is in spite of the fact that he knows that he's basically the Kingpin of crime for all of New York. And this is a guy who has, on the one hand, committed who the hell knows how many acts of murder, and on the other hand, is accepted by high society and is treated as something other than a murderer. And it's like this just isn't sinking in uh, for Peter. And speaking of, I guess, flourishes and tropes and recurring elements in Ultimate Spider-Man, another one that happens is Spider-Man getting unmasked. You can actually make a drinking game if you were so inclined of Spider-Man getting unmasked or people discovering his secret identity. It sort of becomes a recurring thing in in Ultimate Spider-Man. It's just, it happens again here. It's really funny. And I guess the thing about this story that really works for me, you know, the, the rivalry that exists between uh, Kingpin and Spider-Man... Actually, you know what? What I think I'm going to do is actually let... I'm going to let Brian Michael Bendis speak for himself on this. He, was, he, he gave an interview with Right Now magazine, wherein he was quoted, Especially in Ultimate Spider-Man, the Kingpin represents this hard lesson that you learn growing up, that bad people get away with shit. He represents all that to Peter. And also to the Kingpin... Peter's this thing that he can't kill. He just can't do it. He just can't get a hand on him. And there's nothing he can do that's going to make Peter afraid of him. And so Peter's just going to make fat jokes to his face and, and web his feet to the floor. This image of this man who's tried so hard to accumulate all this wealth and respect, but there's this little fucker who, who's not even going to acknowledge any of it. That, that's a lot of fun to write and and end quotation and that's one of the reasons why I was kind of happy that this is that it was the kingpin that was the villain of this of this story because I think for a lot of people the kingpin has sort of become a daredevil villain but number one he started off as a Spider-Man villain. And number two, I mean, I've just never seen it written in stone somewhere that Daredevil has a monopoly on the Kingpin. Now, there's an argument that Daredevil's rogues gallery is kind of anemic, and so he needs all the enemies he can get. And Spider-Man really isn't hurting for enemies when you think about it. I mean, he's got a pretty a pretty decent little rogues gallery. And there's something to that. But, like I say, I mean, I never thought of the Kingpin as one of those villains where he's got a kind of exclusive arrangement with any other character in the Marvel Universe. I always thought of Kingpin as being more of a Marvel Universe type of villain as opposed to one specific character's villain. So, I guess on that basis, 
I mean, I've seen a lot of people, I shouldn't say outrage, but get a little bit pissed off about the fact that uh, the Kingpin is in the Ultimate Universe. He's really more of a Spider-Man villain than anything else. And I don't know. I mean, it's like people think that Daredevil has got license and registration on the Kingpin when it comes to, you know, whose villain he is. I just don't really... I don't really relate to that. You know, that that doesn't scan for me. So, anyway. Um, but I guess to just kind of continue my little summary here. Uh, there's this moment, and of course they don't number the fucking pages, so, you know, who knows. But there's this moment in issue number 10 where Spider-Man and Aunt May, they just level with each other, you know? And Aunt May asks, you know, forget about family for just a minute. Forget about, you know, do you love me or not? Do you even like me? Like, as a person, do you, do you like who I am? And on the one hand, that's kind of a strange thing for an adult to ask. I can't say their child because whatever, Peter's not actually her, her kid, but I don't know, that's just a weird thing for a guardian to ask their child, you know, to need that sort of validation. And the thing to keep in mind is that May never really anticipated having Peter in her life, just to start with. And then, you know, after after the death of Uncle Ben, she certainly never anticipated taking care of Peter all by herself. And I think it would be fair to say that right now, Aunt May is lost. She's confused. She doesn't know how to... I mean, Peter doesn't really know how to be Spider-Man. And I don't think Aunt May really knows how to how to be a mother. I mean, this was something that in my mind, this was something that she and Uncle Ben kind of did together, and she doesn't know how to how to be this all by herself. And I don't know. I just, on the one hand, it seems a little bit strange that an adult would have this type of a conversation with a child. And then on the other hand, I don't know. I mean, there's a there's a fucking honesty to this. On the other hand, that I don't know. I, I just to me it plays for me, you know. So anyway, um, as to you know goings on in, let's see, that is issue number eleven. You know, all through this, I mean, look, don't get me wrong. We've got some career best work from from Mark Bagley, you know, through all of this. But the the art, I think specifically in starting in issue number eight, where you could fairly well say that Bagley's starting to settle in a little bit more specifically to Ultimate Spider-Man. He's defining... I, not so much the visual language of Spider-Man, because that's been around for a long time now, but he's starting to get, I guess, 
more comfortable with this title. Does that make sense? He's becoming more at home in specifically this iteration of Spider-Man. Now, I'm a Mark Bagley fanboy from way back. As many of you may remember, I tried, 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 tried like hell to get in to Spider-Man back when the, the Clone Saga was first getting underway back in the 90s. And guys, let's face it, that is not a good time to try starting to collect Spider-Man and, and getting into Spider-Man, getting into his world and the characters and all that. It's, that's just the wrong fucking time for it to happen. But one of the main things that I took away from that little excursion that I had into the Clone Saga is that Mark Bagley is hands down my favorite Spider-Man artist. And for as good as his work was, even back then, the work that he does on Ultimate Spider-Man is just so far ahead of that. That, I mean, on the one hand, yes, he's recognizably the same artist, you know? This isn't a thing where you have to, you'd have to double check the credits to make sure that this is the same guy. No, it's manifestly the same artist. But he is so much better at what he does by the time of Ultimate Spider-Man. I mean... To me, it's not that he somehow diminishes his old work, but it's just, it's kind of hard in a way to look back at his old work once you've read enough of Ultimate Spider-Man. Does that make sense? So, there's a neat little moment, though, in issue number 11, where... Basically, uh, Spider-Man has a meeting with what he first assumes is a is a guidance counselor and basically she asks all kinds of questions about the monster that attacked the high school you know green goblin she asks questions about harry uh she asks questions about uh, spider-man goings on uh you know with that and i guess the shit that went down in the first story arc Amazing Spider-Man, or sorry, Ultimate Spider-Man numbers one through seven. And as the as the conversation unfolds, it kind of sets off your your spidey sense a little bit. You know, who is this chick? Because she's asking questions that it starts getting a little bit, I guess. It, it goes a little bit far considering the fact that she's not really... Ah, fuck it. Basically, I think, I think I can just come right out and say it because, honestly, we're beyond the, I guess, the statute of limitations for spoilers. Basically, this chick is, a, is an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. and she's, she knows damn good and well who Peter is and she's basically here posing as as a, a therapist slash guidance counselor to help people deal with the post-traumatic stress disorder of what went on with the Green Goblin attacking the high school. But no, really what she's here to do is make contact with Peter. So fuck it. Anyway, you know, sometimes in life you can't find a very artistic way of working around a, a huge spoiler like that. So fuck it. Here we are. 
anyway, one of the things that happens in this issue, though, is basically Peter, instead of attacking the the kingpin head on, he basically gets information about the type of security system that that Wilson Fisk uh, uses in uh, his skyscraper, finds out how it works, and basically uses that to gather evidence. Instead of... Instead of attacking the kingpin head-on, he decides to... to... I guess try sneakier methods, you know, gather intel, do recon, and steal evidence so that a legal case can be put uh, put together and used against Kingpin. Because if we know nothing else, going uh, eyeball to eyeball, toe to toe, hand to hand combat, these things aren't going to work in taking down the Kingpin. There's got to be another way of doing it. And speaking of tropes and flourishes and all that stuff, there's this moment where uh, Peter watches this sort of online demo of the security system, what it is and how it works. And it's hosted by somebody called Patsy Walker. And we see Patsy Walker quite a lot in various and sundry Ultimate Comics. And anyway, it's it's kind of like, Hi, I'm Troy McClure. You might remember me from such self-help videos as Get Confidence, Stupid. So, I don't know. It's just, it's kind of funny. She's the Troy McClure of the Ultimate Marvel Universe. And that to me is just... Uh, is kind of amusing. But like I say, the value of this is basically Peter Peter learning from his mistakes. And I don't know. That that works for me. I find that Peter's a smart guy, and I think that he would take the right lessons from getting the shit beaten out of him by uh King Penn and his thugs instead of trying to uh, fight them head on again, he would logically try to use other methods to to take them down. So anyway, that all works for me. Then you start getting into the, I guess the final issue where Peter and MJ. Look, this either works for you or it doesn't. And if you're not a fan of of Peter and Mary Jane, I guess as a couple then you're probably not going to be okay with, you know, how close they're getting to one another. But thing is, at the time that Ultimate Spider-Man was coming out, I kind of considered myself to be a little bit of a MJ and Peter shipper. And I kind of liked the idea of, of Peter with with MJ and I don't know I mean the older I get the more I realize you know in the regular 616 Marvel universe there's a very strong argument that Gwen Stacy is actually the one for him but the thing is Gwen Stacy the the ultimate Gwen the ultimate universe Gwen Stacy I really couldn't picture somebody like that As a long-term thing, you understand? I couldn't picture somebody like that being attracted to someone like Peter. I just can't see it. So, 
I guess what I'm saying is MJ MJ makes a lot more sense in the Ultimate Universe than Gwen Stacy does. Put it that way. So that much I'm okay with. Now, would Peter, in fact, tell Mary Jane all about his secret identity? You know what? A, a teenager, I think, would be just stupid enough to do that, you know? I... I, he just, he wouldn't think about the consequences. He wouldn't think about, you know, the the risk that Mary Jane might be facing now knowing his secret. That wouldn't be uppermost in his mind. He has a secret. And on the one hand, he's kind of proud of it. But the thing to keep in mind is that the nature of secrets is for them to be shared. And when you think about it, it's, I guess, the the entire concept of a secret it's almost there's really no such thing you know secrets inherently want to be known the bigger the secret the more it wants to be known and so the idea of swearing somebody to secrecy guys the only way one of your secrets is going to stay secret is if you don't tell anybody period end of discussion and yeah, I think it would be fair to say that Mary Jane proves herself to be trustworthy. But it didn't have to be that way. I mean, odds are... Odds are, you know, most people that you would tell this type of a secret to, 10 to 1, they probably can't be trusted. But one of the things that works for me about issue 13 as a whole is that there really is no supervillain that... Uh, Spider-Man has to beat the shit out of. There's no... There's no urgent rescue that has to be made. Anything like that. This is basically... Nothing but a really, really long conversation between Peter and Mary Jane. And... I know it really pisses some people off to compare comics to other types of media, you know? When they say that, when, it, when people say that, you know, comics tell very TV types of stories, or when other people say that, you know, comics should be really cinematic, that for some people is a little bit of a hot button type of issue, and so I'm not, I'm not trying to tweak those people or anything, but this seems like a very TV type of idea you know this you know the 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 idea of having an entire issue of people and i mean like two people just talking to each other in a bedroom to my recollection that was never an episode of buffy the vampire slayer but it could have been you know that's the kind of thing that joss whedon might have done on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and I don't know why, that just seems like a very TV type of idea. You know, this is something that you can do with a certain type of TV show. You know, you can have an episode where the hero never really puts on his outfit. He basically just talks to somebody, and I don't know. This, this is kind of 
it's controversial for some people because you know their attitude is look i have to wait an entire month for the for these issues to come out sometimes longer if the issue is late and i want something other than people just sitting around talking to each other you know and you know on the one hand i get that but i don't know this i i just i don't have a problem with it so it's fine so i think that's pretty much going to be it. I mean, I guess maybe there are other things I could say, but I, I, I kind of feel like I'm already talking in circles as it is. So overall, really dig this story, really dig this art. This is just a fun comic book to me, you know? And it's, to me, it's everything that makes Brian Michael Bendis fun as a writer. And that, I think, is pretty much... The end of the Tremendous Bendis Weekly slash uh, Brian Michael Bendis Appreciation miniseries. So, a lot of fun. Anyway, now, I guess as to next week, I'm going to be, at least right now, at the time that I record all of this, the plan is for me to join forces with Tom Panneries to talk about something that's so secret that I don't actually want to announce it right now because who knows if this actually is even going to happen, but I'm going to try like hell to make it happen. So next week, the plan is for me to be joined by Tom Pannery so that we can talk about something that I think is really far off the beaten path for me, at least as far as my usual subject matter and the things that typically get discussed on Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. Next week's subject matter promises to be something completely different from what I normally talk about. So I'm just going to leave you guys hanging on, on that. But as for right now, I'm going to take a break and I'll be right back after these messages with some feedback because it's been a hell of a long time since I've had any kind of feedback on this show. So stay tuned. Is your entire life populated with liars? Ever wondered if you're talking to somebody who's completely full of shit? Well then, have we got the app for you. Juked Micronics is proud to present the Lie Detector app. Yes, as seen on TV, the Juked Micronics Lie Detector app is here. And does it work? Bet your balls it works. All you have to do is turn on the Lie Detector app, Hold your phone up to your Mark's mouth and ask them to repeat their last statement. And within mere moments, the Juked Lie Detector app will tell you if your Mark fed you a line of total horse shit, or if they're telling you more truth than a 9-11 conspiracy video. The Juked Micronics Lie Detector app. Perfect for job interviews, Al-Qaeda terrorist interrogations, and double-checking your teenage daughter's alibi. The Lie Detector app, now available from Juked Micronics.
Okay, I'm back now, and I've got a little bit of feedback to work my way through here, because as I said, I think at this point, several episodes ago, I'm really trying to get caught up on feedback here, and because of the fact that I've got so much in the hopper here, I've got such this just friggin' huge backlog of feedback, what I want to do is try whittling this down, and hopefully I can start working my way through more and more of this with each passing episode. So that's what I'm hoping for anyway, but I guess we'll see how this actually plays out. So the feedback that I have to work my way through this time is dated January the 20th, 2015, which should just about tell you how far behind on feedback I am. But anyway, January the 20th, 2015, this is sent in by Gene Gene, the podcasting machine Hendrix, uh, host of the Hammer Strikes podcast, which you can find at thehammerstrikes.com. Gene is also the lead blogger uh, for the Hammer Strikes blog, which you can find at thehammerstrikes.blogspot.com. Uh, he's also the host of the Quantum Cast, which you can find at truetruefreaks.com. Anime Freaks, which again you can find at truetruefreaks.com. He hosts that as well. So. Clearly, he's a man of many and varied interests. So, anyway, Gene's a great guy. We all love Gene. And I finally have some feedback from him. So, this is really good news. But anyway, like I say, January the 20th, 2015, listener and podcaster is Gene Gene, the podcasting machine Hendrix. And the title of this email is Batman. Gene writes, Your Excellency. I just finished listening to your rant slash monologue in response to a Batman-centric email from Fanboy Miss Prime where you asked your loyal vassals to write in with their thoughts on the Dark Knight Detective. And I'm going to put this email on pause and say, dude, this was so freaking long ago, I guess I've completely blanked on this because I truly have no idea where this is coming from. I don't mean that as a slam, I'm just saying I don't remember anymore. I mean, it's just, it's just gone. So, anyway, um, you're going to kind of have to be my guide here in all of this and I hope you know that but anyway get back into Gene's email he writes never let it be said that I failed to respond to a request from my betters I draw your attention to the last word in the description of Batman that I typed above detective to me Batman is first and foremost a detective does he have fighting prowess yup does he have the ability to think strategically and tactically yes but not foreseeing all ends. But he will always be the guy that can figure out the location of the villain by some clue that everyone else overlooked. I'm going to put this email on pause and say, A fucking men, dude. Because, you know, one of the most common, I guess, tricks that a lot of writers depend upon to get Batman uh, into, I don't know, a confrontation with the villain, or maybe even, you know, like a final confrontation, is that kind of, it's a sort of a trope of a lot of superhero stuff that you that you see, it's on TV, it's in comics, it's in movies. They find some fucking clue, and then they say, there's only one place where you can find this. Uh, and then that's, of course, the fucking villain's hideout. And it's just so fucking cheap. You know, and I realize that you know, it's kind of hard to think up, I guess, like, detective types of ways for Batman to find the villain's hideout and stuff. Or the next place the villain is going to strike or, you know, stuff like that. 
I'm sure it's a pain in the balls, but dude, it's your fucking job. Figure it out. You know? It's just, it's so cheap. You know? There's only one place that you can find a, a red dandelion anywhere in Gotham City. So that must be Poison Ivy's hideout. Just fucking bullshit. So, yes, I agree with you. You know, we do need to see more detectiving on the part of... Um, especially on the part of Batman. I mean, look, I guess I, I'd be willing to overlook that kind of, you know, sneaky monopoly uh, uh, approach to, to detective work that it seems like all the other superheroes need to depend on. I guess I'm willing to accept it for them. But damn it, man. I mean, you know, Batman, like you say, needs to be the detective. And you should never write a Batman story where Batman says, there's only one place where you can find this, this bullshit. And that's in... Uh, Chris Nolan movie or something like that, which of course is not even true. I mean, say whatever you want about Chris Nolan. I really don't think he ever depended upon that that little trope. You know, whenever Batman, just for example, when Batman tracked down the Joker in the Dark Knight, he used cell phone technology. Now, impossible cell phone technology, but cell phone technology nevertheless in order to track down the Joker. And I'll take that any day of the week you know, impossible technology like that. I'll take that any fucking day of the week over there is only one place where you can find uh, fucking whatever, you know? Uh, if So, whatever. Get back into Gene's email, though, because this is supposed to be about him. Gene writes, This is probably due to my first exposure to the character being on the Super Friends and in reruns of the 60s Adam West show. In each of these, Batman is portrayed as a thinker who gathers all the clues together to figure out where the villain is and what they're up to. I'm going to put this on pause again and say, you know, that's true. Now, there were instances where Adam West used that monopoly approach to detective work. There's only one place where you can find blah, fucking blah, 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 blah. You know, that happened on the show with some regularity. But as often, you know, there was a, a chain of logic uh, and thought process where Batman would find the villain. Now, oftentimes it was an incomprehensible chain of logic and the thought process, but nevertheless, it was there. So, as I say, I, I'm willing to give Adam West a lot of leeway, you know? So, anyway, to get back into the email, though, Gene writes... This was reinforced by the comics of the 1980s where a fallible, yes, fallible Batman often had missteps before figuring out the plot in the end. This is also probably the reason that the super smart best at everything he thinks he even thinks about doing. I have a plan for every possible and impossible outcome. I'm Batman version of the character. Just turns me off. And I'm going to put this email back on pause and say, you know what, for a long time, that approach to the character bothers me too. And in fact, that approach to the character actually bothers me when there's no context to it. But ages and ages ago, I embarked upon a, a sort of a, a, a Batman reading project where I basically just picked up this huge stack of Batman comics. I, and now, of course, I'm forgetting what it was, but I want to say it was year one and then I just worked my way up through something like I think it was Hush something like that I don't remember but it was it was around there I, I'm pretty sure and of course that's going to take you through Nightfall and one of the things that I kind of have to acknowledge about Nightfall is that 
if Batman had more of a of an infrastructure, if he had more of a, for want of a better word, if he had more of a Batman family to help him out, then it's reasonable to assume that Nightfall would have played out very differently. And so as a result, Batman's confrontation with Bane might have played out very differently, you know? If Batman had, had basically, I guess, given Tim Drake more of a responsibility in bringing, in bringing down at least some of the harmless Arkham Asylum escapees, and then recruited, I don't know, Anarchy, the Huntress, Nightwing, and maybe a few others to help him in hunting down the more dangerous Arkham Asylum escapees, he might have been in better condition once Bane finally came knocking for him, you know? And, you know, who's to say that that fight might not have gone a different way? But because of the fact that Batman didn't really have much of a plan to deal with something like Arkham Asylum getting busted open, he was pretty much caught flat-footed, and so by the time Bane finally showed up, Batman really couldn't even put up too much of a fight. And what I think we're supposed to assume is that that experience was so informative to Batman. You know, this was such a learning experience for him that what he decided, right or wrong, is that he needs to basically put himself in a position where if worse ever truly comes to worst, no matter what that might be, he can still find a way to continue with his mission, you know, and it may slow him down, it may change, you know, his his short-term or even his long-term plans, but damn it, he can continue. And I think that's a reasonable interpretation of everything that Batman experienced in Nightfall and God knows with Nightquest. I'm not saying that it's always appropriate to show Batman in this way, but when you give him I guess Jean-Paul Valli as the worst-case scenario of what can happen when Batman doesn't plan ahead, I think it actually makes a lot of sense. So, again, it's not something that I want to see an overabundance of, and God help us, if it's got to be done at all, it needs to happen for a reason. Batman needs a reason to think in these terms. Otherwise, it's just kind of retarded, you know? So I agree with you. I just want to add this one little tiny nuance here that, you know, if you depict Batman in this way, he needs to have a reason. And post Night's End, I would submit to you that he had a reason, you know? So hopefully that all makes sense. But to get back into uh, get back into Gene's email here, he writes... This is also probably the reason the super smart best at everything he even thinks about doing. I have a plan for every possible and impossible outcome. I'm Batman version of the character. Just turns me off like I read a minute ago. But as I've stated on a few occasions, I'm mentally stuck in the 80s and 90s of comics, although I've recently begun looking further back. Signed, Gene. And you know what, dude? If you mean you're going back into the Bronze Age, bless you. Bless you, sir. I love the Bronze Age. I'm of the opinion that, at least for DC's participation in the Bronze Age, that's one of the more creatively fertile, and I would say creatively successful attempts DC ever made of competing with Marvel, where 
DC, they were definitely DC. They were their own unique voice in the comic book market. But they were starting to respond to Marvel somewhat. And I just, I dig that era of DC Comics. I mean, the Bronze Age, I'm not saying it's necessarily the best that DC has to offer, but it's pretty fucking good, and I love it. And if that's the kind of stuff that you're starting to check into, good on you, man. Now, Marvel in the 70s, I think it's got a little bit more of an... It's just a little bit more uneven because of the fact that I don't think... After about the time that Stan Lee stepped down as editor-in-chief at, at Marvel, there's a very strong argument that Marvel kind of lost the plot for a while there until, I don't know, like Jim Shooter showed up, you know? And he basically got the trains running on time, you know? But there was a point in the 70s where Marvel was publishing all kinds of bullshit that you kind of have to wonder, like in retrospect, what kind of quality control, if any, did they have on their books? And I think there's a very strong argument that basically insert EIC here pretty much let the inmates take over the asylum. And as long as the books were selling relatively successful, nobody was really going to raise too much of a stink about what was or wasn't happening in the pages of these comics. And I happen to... to be among those people who believes that Jim Shooter taking over as EIC at Marvel happened honestly I think it happened at the right time and there's a very strong argument that it could have it could have and should have happened a lot sooner than it did and if it had it might have actually worked out better for everybody concerned so you know maybe that's unknown and unknowable but you know if you look at the amount of stuff that Shooter was able to accomplish I don't know. I think he did pretty well for himself. So, anyway. All of this is to say that if you're talking about the Bronze Age here and getting more into the 70s and stuff like that, dude... You know what? That may actually be worthy of another podcast for you all by itself. Because I think you're going to have the time of your life working your way through the 70s. So, if you want to, feel free to write in uh, some more and just let me know what you think of the comics that you're, that you're reading. So, that I think is pretty much that um i've got obviously a pretty huge backlog of feedback and stuff to work through here but i think this is probably enough to be going on with so that i think is probably where i'm gonna be calling it a day at least for this episode this week so that i think is pretty much that now as to next week i'm gonna be joined by uh, tom panarese the host of the pop culture affidavit podcast and the blogger of the po uh, pop culture affidavit blog and basically what he and i are going to be talking about is rem's out of time album from 1991 now i know what you're thinking but magnus but magnus your show is supposed to be about comics movies and tv shows why are you talking about music and the reason i'm talking about music is because fuck you i felt like talking about music so that's pretty much the reason for it. I have been playing the shit out of R.E.M.'s Out of Time CD for weeks, and I wanted to talk about it, and Tom Panarese was game for doing so. So he and I, next week, we're going to get together, and we're talking about R.E.M.'s Out of Time. So if you want to listen to some music, or if you just want to listen to other people talk about music or whatever, if you're an R.E.M. fan or whatever, 
In fact, especially if you're an REM fan, I recommend checking out next week's episode. So come back for that. But I think that's pretty much it for me this week. Bye, everybody. I'll see you next week. Jeff hey Mike I'm trailing man it sure is great to be back to FCTC after such a long time yes it is and we've been away so long yeah but real life and you know what I, I just I just can't do this can't do what we have taken more breaks from this show than my wife has had in her entire life I mean we can talk about real life getting in the way which it has but it's it's just not fair so we're not going to joke around, and we're going to simply say that for the moment, we're back, and there's a lot of neat stuff to talk about. Like Season 2 of Lois and Clark. And the death of Clark Kent. And the launch of Superman the Man of Tomorrow. And the return of Lex Luthor. And the trial of Superman. And Underworld Unleashed. <laughs> the show can still be found at the Superman homepage, as well as at the Fortress of Bailitude. And we're still part of the Superman Podcast Network. So From Crisis to Crisis is back. For now. And it will still come out on Thursdays. Most week at www.fortressofbailey2.com, www.supermanhomepage.com, or www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Starting in 1993 and ending, also in 1993, DC Comics brought us 25 issues featuring the premiere of new characters who would go on to shape the face of comics of 1993. For over 20 years, DC Comics has tried to bury these new classics like Nightblade, Edge, Hook, Razor Sharp, and other knife-handed heroes for fear they would overshadow their old standards like Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Vexed, and Airwave. For too long, our voices have not been heard. But no longer. Coming soon, Bloodline's Best Event Ever Network brings together dozens of podcasters and bloggers who... Wait. What? Okay. Bloodlines. Best event ever network. Brings together several podcasters and bloggers... What now? I'm doing... Really? They all said no? Brings together a few... Does that work? Okay, then. A few podcasters and bloggers who are not afraid to stand up and be labeled fools for doing something stupid. Featuring such podcasters and blogs as Diablo Frank, Professor Allen, I Am The Gun, Coffee and Comics, Between the Pages, and myself, Al Sedano. More details can be found at resurrectionsadamwarlock.dumbler.com. Bloodlines, best event ever network, coming on or about April 1st, 2016. April Fools. Or is it?
Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacore of Milan, Italy. <laughs>